Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Um, welcome. Uh, my name's Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum, uh, and I'm going to be chairing uh, this evening's event, uh, in which our speakers are going to be thinking about hypocrisy. So each speaker will have about 10 minutes to put forward their position on hypocrisy, and then we'll have lots of time for discussion between the panel and to take questions as well from the audience. Um, so let me introduce this evening's speakers. Um, our first speaker is Demetrius Tilleris, who is Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Canterbury Christchurch University. Our next speaker will be Yossi Sukunen, who is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Birmingham. And our final speaker will be Joanna Birch-Brown, who is lecturer in philosophy at Bristol <coughs> University. So I'll hand over now to our first speaker, Dr. Demetrius Tilleris. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, I would also like to thank the Forum for the invitation. Uh, now, saying something meaningful on today's very important topic in 10 minutes is perhaps a Herculean task. I will try to do so, however, and I want to begin with a piece of conventional wisdom. The word hypocrite is an epithet, never a term of praise. Indeed, as Schla writes in Ordinary Vices, hypocrisy is often portrayed as the ultimate vice. It remains the only unforgivable scene, especially amongst those who can overlook or perhaps explain and justify every other vice. And a brief reading of the history of political philosophy and various media headlines does seem to suggest this much. No criticism of politicians seems to be more common than the charge of hypocrisy, and the desire to wriggle free from hypocrisy is a recurrent feature of even the most sophisticated discussions of its role in liberal democratic politics. The problem is not that hypocrites are bound, however, and when it comes to hypocrisy, we all have our favorite examples. Billionaire egalitarians, champagne socialists, or limousine liberals, to the more commonplace cases of flip-flopping politicians who misrepresent themselves as paragons of moral virtue. But the trouble here is that it, is seem, it seems easy to point at these hypocrisies that exposed, it is, however, much harder to grasp the elusive nature of hypocrisy. Even more difficult, it seems, is to explain why we tend to judge hypocrites more harshly than practitioners of other vices. And it is these questions which I want to address here. And in so doing, I want to explore briefly a particular type of hypocrisy uh, and to examine how it might differ from lying and also to explore its relationship with truthfulness. Now, the idea of hypocrisy does originate in the ancient Greek theater, whereby a speaker spoke under and separate from the otherwise homogeneous chorus. The literal meaning of the term, hypocrinome, was to act a part to pretend to be something one is not. Its ethical neutrality aside, the ancient usage of the term does relate to our contemporary understanding of the notion, insofar as the discourse of the theater occupies a central place in our discussion of hypocrisy. It also explains some of the negative connotations associated with the term. Individuals who play a part tend to be untrustworthy. They hide behind the mask they wear. They have more than one face they can display. The audience, however, is aware in the context of the theater that what is being witnessed is a charade. Trustworthiness is also hardly an issue. The trouble with, with actors encountered in real life, however, is that the audience is unaware of what is being witnessed, quite often unaware of what is being witnessed. And to put it simply then, playing a part 
uh, whilst the audience isn't aware of what is of one's acting, is bound to involve some form of deception. Hence, the rather stylized definition of hypocrisy, uh, which associates the term with insincerity, fraud, dissimulation, and sham. Now, the question which merits more scrutiny here is this. What is the object of deception? If hypocrisy is to be understood as mask-wearing, what is being masked? And the prevalent conception of hypocrisy, which stems from the extension of the term from the theater to public professions of religious faith by individuals who fail to practice what they preached, is suggestive here. Hypocrisy involves a false appearance of virtue or goodness with dissimulation of real character or inclination. And this type of hypocrisy is gestured and defended by Machiavelli in The Prince. In The Prince, Machiavelli is clear that politicians, if they are to satisfy the demands of politics, must learn how not to be morally good. They must learn a portion of the moral virtue and cultivate and be ready to practice certain moral vices for important political reasons. The causes of the lion and the fox, cruelty and deception. So hypocrisy constitutes an example of the latter vice, but there's also another catch here. Machiavelli is clear that whilst politicians cannot be morally good, they must also know how to avoid incurring infamy of those vices that would take the state away from them. So since being morally virtuous is impossible, seeming to be so is all important. Wearing a mask of virtue, appearing to quote Machiavelli, all mercy, all honesty, all humanity, is crucial if one is to avoid being hated by the people he's supposed to rule. So to put the point more simply and generally, what the hypocrite conceals behind his mask is his moral vices. He pretends that his motives, intentions, and character are irreproachable when they're not. Now, once hypocrisy is not bound by the conventions of the stage, it can take many different forms. It can include claims to consistency that one cannot sustain, claims to loyalty or identity that one does not hold or does not possess. But what unites these manifestations of hypocrisy is this. Its practitioners construct a persona which helps them to amass certain external rewards. If one is not or can never be morally virtuous in the domain in which trustworthiness, loyalty matter, and the accumulation of certain rewards might be impossible without some form of hypocritical dissimulation. But how then does hypocrisy differ from lying? Now, insofar as both vices encompass aspects of deception, it might appear that hypocrisy does not differ from lying that much. It is just an extravagant form of lying. If we are to maintain the language of the theater as central to our understanding of hypocrisy, however, a much starker differentiation between the two becomes possible. Now, in its commonest form, a lie is just a lie. It's a short, dry, false statement, advanced perhaps with an intention to deceive. It need not involve the construction of a persona or the putting on of a theatrical act. And an act involves the attempt to convey an impression beyond the instant of the lie itself. So hypocrisy does not just involve an incongruence with the truth. The acting involved in the creation of a false impression turns on questions of character and it's much more enduring. And because hypocrisy involves a theatrical performance of some sort, the acts of the virtuoso of hypocrisy are far more wide-ranging than those of the liar, whose repertoire of deceitful acts is rather limited. Truthfulness and hypocrisy tend to be conceived as opposites, especially by critics of hypocrisy, but the pretense of virtue might even include truthful statements. And this paradoxical feature of hypocrisy is captured by one of its greatest connoisseurs, Moliere. In Moliere's play Tartuffe, the eponymous character pretends to be a model of religious faith and works his way into Orgon's estate where he's fawned upon. The discrepancy between hypocrisy and lying is evident when the Mies, 
Ogun's son, accuses Tartuffe that he's a conman, to which Tartuffe replies, Yes, brother, I am wicked, I am guilty. No, no, you let appearances deceive you. The simple truth is that I'm a worthless creature. Now, Tartuffe does not lie here. He tells Ogun that he's a scoundrel, and that's the truth. But his truthfulness does not amount to a genuine confession. Tartuffe does not remove his mask. He does not bring his act to an end. And Ogun's reaction is suggestive here. Ogun takes this confession as another indication of Tartuffe's virtue. He gets angry at his son for accusing this saintly man and tries to earn Tartuffe's forgiveness by offering him his entire fortune. Tartuffe's truthfulness forms an essential part of his hypocrisy and his attempt to appropriate Ogun's wealth. The appearance of remorse and humility is an integral aspect of his performance, even though, or perhaps despite, the fact that his speech is literally veracious. So to conclude then, Hypocrisy involves an enduring and vicious form of deception, the playing of a part, and the wearing of a mask. The hypocrite conceals behind his mask his vices, uh, his intentions or commitments which he cannot honor. The audience is given a false impression that the character of this individual is morally irreproachable and trustworthy. And the hypocrite's intention is to exploit the sensitivities of the audience in order to accumulate certain external goods or rewards. Now, given all this, it seems unsurprising that hypocrisy is often portrayed as the antithesis of moral goodness. For hypocrisy requires a capacity for manipulation, for speaking improperly, for what the ancient Greeks term as poneria, which means wickedness or cunningness. It's also not a surprise that hypocrisy uh, is often seen as the ultimate vice, for in contrast to some of the other vices, such as lying and cruelty, hypocrisy is much harder to detect. It operates in two layers. It does not just involve a failure to practice what one preaches, the strategic uh, feigning of virtue in order to amass certain rewards. Rather, it also forms a coping mechanism for concealing the rest of the moral vices. It constitutes, in La Rochefoucauld's phrase, the tribute vice pays to virtue. Now, the dressing up of vice as virtue seems to make things considerably worse for us. It piles vice on top of vice and limits our capacity to detect injustice. But on the other hand, it seems to me that hypocrites are in fact, or at least appear to be better than they might be. Uh, and hence the question that I want to uh, conclude with. If hypocrisy is a moral vice, is it also a political vice? Is it incompatible with democratic politics? Or might it be the case that it is one of the qualities that democratic politicians and citizens might have to cultivate and display in their ordinary practices and rituals? And finally, can we really wriggle free from hypocrisy? Is that possible or desirable? Now, I will conclude here, and I will rather also shamelessly point you to one of my published papers, uh, which is called uh, The Virtue of Vice, A Defense of Hypocrisy in Democratic Politics, in which I argue that hypocrisy might well and should be seen as a political virtue. I'm happy to discuss this in the Q&A session. Thank you. tantalizing conclusion, I think. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Our next speaker is uh, Yussi Sukkinen. So there's two questions I wanted to address in 10 minutes. So one of them is, um, what, do our, what do our intuitions about hypocrisy and who the hypocrites are tell us about moral motivation and how moral judgments are connected to uh, motivation? And then the second question is, I want to think about what kind of criticism it is to call someone a hypocrite. Um, in what way is it bad to be a hypocrite? 
Um, should we not be hypocrites? That's the second question I want to think about. So I want to start from a very stereotypical example of hypocrisy. So imagine you have a friend, and your friend is kind of for private education, whereas you're against private education. And then you have a big debate with your friend, and you manage, I mean, this never happens, but you manage to convince them that your view is the right view, and they come to think actually there is something bad about private education. And then what happens after that is that you, you hear your friend rail against private education on several occasions, but it turns out that they're sending their own children to a private school. So I think in that case, it would be quite natural to call that person a hypocrite. They're kind of making a moral judgment that uh, there's something wrong about private education, but they're not really applying that judgment to their own case. They, they have a certain kind of double standards at play. So I want to make two observations about that. So first of all, it seems to me that hypocrisy requires that you do make a sincere, genuine moral judgment. So sometimes people just use moral words in a sort of inverted commas sense, and they use them very strategically. Um, but I don't think that amounts to hypocrisy. I think hypocrisy requires that you really sincerely think that something's right or wrong. Um, the second um, thing I want to observe about that case is that it seems like that the kind of the reason we call your friend in that case a hypocrite is that there's a certain kind of expectation at play. So it seems like we expect that people really are motivated in accordance to their own moral judgment. So if we didn't expect that, then some people might be motivated and other people might not be motivated, and it was all happenstance. So with, and in that case, it, it really wouldn't make sense to call people hypocrites or criticize them for being hypocrites. It, it does seem like hypocrisy requires that we, there's a kind of strong expectation that people are motivated by their moral judgments. So you might think that this leads to a kind of very strong connection between moral judgments and motivation. So you might think that it's the case that necessarily, if you make a moral judgment, you're motivated to act in accordance to that judgment. But I think that's going to be far too strong. And I think our intuitions about hypocrisy tell us that. So take cases of weakness of will, for instance. So I think I'm thinking of a case, some kind of addiction case. So imagine you're someone's addicted to, say, playing computer games. Um, and they might make the moral judgment that it's wrong to do so, to do so and it, they ought to be doing something else. But they might be weak-willed when uh, kind of their addiction or the temptation outweighs um, the motivation they have to act accordance to their moral judgment. So I, I don't think the weak-willed people are hypocrites in that sense. Um, I think the difference between weak-willed and, uh, people and hypocrites is a very interesting one. So I think... The weak-willed person has the right amount of motivation to act in accordance to their moral judgment, but some other motivation just outweighs that. Whereas what happens with the hypocrites is that they only have a kind of tiny amount. They don't have enough motivation to act in accordance to their moral, moral judgment. I also think that um, we might think of very sort of some cases of depressed and listless people. So these are people who are so depressed that they're not motivated to do anything at all. So I think those people, too, are making moral judgments, but because of their depression and listlessness, they have no motivation to act accordingly. I don't think, again, that we would call those people hypocrites um, in that sense. Hypocrisy seems to be a different um, phenomenon from that kind of complete failure of motivation. 
So I'm thinking that on the basis of these intuitions about who we call um, hypocrites, we get the kind of view that if you make a moral judgment, you have to have some motivation to act accordingly, um, unless you suffer from this kind of practical irrationality like listlessness or depression. So I, I think it's kind of quite revealing to think about which people we call hypocrites, because tell, that tells us how much motivation and what kind of motivation we expect people to have when they make moral judgments. Um, so that was the first question I wanted to address. So the second question I wanted to address is like what kind of criticism it is when you call someone a hypocrite, what, in what way are you criticizing? Is the person who's doing, being a hypocrite, are they doing something bad? Is it the case that they ought not to be that way? So I wanted to approach that question from uh, recent debates about rationality. So there's been the same kind of debates about what kind of criticism it is to call someone irrational. And is it bad to be irrational? And ought we not be irrational? The same kind of questions we get there. So think of one requirement of rationality. So one thing uh, rationality seems to require is that if you think that you ought to act in a certain way, um, rationality requires to, you intend to do that thing. So if you don't intend to do what you think you ought to do, it seems like that's one way of being um, irrational. So now the question is, is it bad to be irrational in that sense? Ought you not be irrational? Um, I want to say that that depends on what you think you ought to do. So if you've got very funny views about what you ought to do, then it's fine for you to be irrational, and there's nothing bad of being irrational. So imagine this is a very gruesome uh, example. We, we all have small children. But one example in moral philosophy people often use is, uh, imagine someone thinks that they ought to boil newborn babies alive. And imagine that that person uh, fails, their rationality fails, and they, they don't intend to do that. I won't say that thumbs up. That seems to be fine. They ought not to intend to uh, boil newborn babies alive. So if you've got funny views about um, what you ought to do, then um, it's fine to be irrational. So there's a philosopher called Nikol Kolodny who's got quite a nice explanation of that, um, that kind of gives a nice view of rationality that explains that observation. So he thinks that the way we criticize people when we call them irrational is that we kind of, what we're doing is we're trying to get the person to focus their attention to how things appear from their own perspective. Um, it's kind of apparent normativity. When I, when I call the person who doesn't intend to um, pull newborn babies um, alive, when I call them irrational, I'm kind of pointing out how things ought to seem to them from their own perspective. Because they're thinking that they ought to do that. If they're making good, moral, uh, good judgments about what they ought to do, uh, reasonable judgments, then that's useful, because by getting them to focus to their own judgments about what they ought to do, we can get them to act in a reasonable, good way. Whereas we don't want to do that if, they have, if they're boiling newborn babies alive. So I want to say something similar about uh, hypocrisy as well. So I'm thinking that if someone's making bad moral judgments, if they think that the right thing to do is to boil newborn babies alive, and they're not doing that, then they're being hypocrites. But in that case, there's nothing bad about that. They ought not to be not hypocritical in that case. Um, but what that shows is that the, the way in which the kind of criticism of hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy works is that when we call someone a hypocrite, we're trying to get the person to focus to their, to their own moral judgments. We, we're trying to um, get them to focus um, 
of, of how the moral reality appears for them. And sometimes that's useful. It's very useful when they're making good moral judgments. We don't want to do that when they're making bad moral judgments. Thank you. And our final speaker is Dr. Joanna Birch Brown. Hey, <clears throat> this is fascinating. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Um, so I thought I would, um, instead of giving a, a general abstract philosophical analysis of hypocrisy, I thought I'd talk about a specific case that I think is quite interesting, um, which brings up all sorts of different issues of hypocrisy, potentially hypocrisy, and I thought we could use it as a concrete example to, to think with um, when we come to the discussion. So I'm a, I'm a lecturer at University of Bristol, and in Bristol right now there are a set of debates going on, quite heated debates, about whether we should rename the central um, arts venue, the music and arts venue, Colston Hall, uh, which is named after Edward Colston. And there's a set of debates also about all these other memorializations of Edward Colston that go on around the city. So who is Ed Edward Colston? He lived from 1636, I think, until 1721. From the period of 1680 to 1692, he was involved in the Royal African Company, which many of you may know at the time had the monopoly on the slave trades, on British slave trades. Um, he, he started out as an investor in the company, so this is his, his, his mid-40s, um, started out as an investor, went on to become an officer, and then eventually was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company. And during the time that he was uh, in these positions, the, the company, we've estimated, traded around um, 85,000 enslaved Africans, uh, transported them from Africa, from West Africa, to the Americas, with about 20,000, we think, dying on board the ships before they reached the far shore. Um, so extremely troubling historical um, uh, background. Nevertheless, Colston was a major philanthropist of the city of Bristol, so he, he gave um, a lot of money upon his death to establish hospitals and schools um, around the city. And he was adopted by members of the city as really an, an emblem of, of philanthropy, an emblem of the Good Samaritan. So around Bristol, there are dozens of streets named after Colston. There are halls named after Colston. There is an annual celebration in November of Colston Day and commemoration ceremony which celebrates Colston um, as a sort of symbol of the Good Samaritan. And in the cathedral, there's a stained glass window that says, has a, a portrait of Colston and says, go thou and do likewise, or something like that. Um, and at the commemoration day ceremonies, it's sort of it's stated that the purpose of this ceremony is to, is to give thanks to God and Colston, basically. Um, <laughs> so, so he's been raised up as this major figure in the city. Um, campaigners, I've been involved in the campaign, campaigners think that actually it's really important for us to now um, be changing how we're recalling and recounting the history around, around Edward Colston. I think that it's a sign of um, a failure of respect for persons who are harmed through slavery to, to continue celebrating Colston in this way, in particular failing to articulate what's happening, what his, his role in the slave trade. So what's the connection between that and hypocrisy? Well, obviously there's one, one potential connection, which is that um, 
It looks like Colston's being held up as an emblem of the Good Samaritan. That's exactly um, the sort of standard that he seems to be violating in a large domain of, of his life. So there's a, an inconsistency there, which makes it very you know, deeply disturbing that he's being presented as a philanthropist, the great philanthropist, um, which means a lover of humanity, given the, the, the consequences of his actions for tens of thousands of people. Um, there's also a, a way that hypocrisy comes into this, which is that many of the counter-arguments that campaigners have received are arguments from hypocrisy. Um, so to give you two examples, one, one, the sort of less controversial one is that people say, well, um, yes, you're campaigning against Colston, but look, you benefit from going to hear music at Colston Hall, you know, you've got John Elliott Gardner coming up, going to be conducting the Monteverdi Vespers, you're going to go and campaign outside the hall and then go in and listen to the concert. Isn't that um, hypocritical? If you're really being consistent, then you should, um, you know, you should step away entirely. From, from. So, that, so there's a sort of purity idea of hypocrisy at work there, of morality and what's required. If you're going to hold up a standard, you'd better follow, follow it through entirely. And I think that points to an interesting feature of hypocrisy, of arguments from hypocrisy, which is that they can actually be very conservative. They can really tend to, to halt progressive change because um, they give you a disincentive to stand up, and, to stand up for anything. If you're, in a, if you're in a moral situation where, um, for structural reasons, it's very hard to avoid being unjust or immoral in some way, um, might, arguments from hypocrisy can kind of try to block you from making any kind of changes um, because they're, they're intended to sort of discredit you as a speaker. Um, another example of the ways that, uh, of, a, of an argument that's brought against the campaign on the grounds of hypocrisy um, is more uh, distressing in a way to think about, but is very important to, to discuss, I think, because it's the most common objection that we've had. So we've, had, we've been writing letters into the local post, the local paper, People write letters back, and this is the most common objection that's raised, is that people say, well, Africans enslaved Africans. Um, it wasn't just Europeans. So how is it, you know, you're, you're operating with a double standard here. You're claiming that there's something, you know, really wrong about uh, Colston and his behavior, but Africans were enslaving Africans. This is the most common objection that's, that's come up in response to the campaign. I think, actually, in terms of the campaign itself, it's very easy to block this because we can just say, look, uh, Bristol is full of monuments and streets and so on that celebrate Europeans who enslaved Africans. It's not full of monuments to Africans who enslaved Africans. So we should focus on the people that the city is celebrating as heroes uh, and deal with that. But I think there's, you know, there's a larger background set of debates to be had about reparations, for instance, in which you have to deal with those, those kinds of objections more directly. So these are claims about hypocrisy and very generalized ideas about, about big groups. Um, so it's, it seems like that is playing a really important role in those debates. How much time do I have? Is that it? A, few more minutes. a few more minutes. Okay. Um, so I think then, of course, that set of discussions opens up onto a, a larger, you know, much, much larger issue that, that we face today, which is that there was a, you know, centuries in which... Um, Europeans were defending practices of slavery on the grounds that 
this was, you know, part of morality and part of social, the social order, that this was necessary for social progress. They're holding up practices of slavery as, um, as a, really, as a, as a moral necessity. Um, and at the same time, preaching freedom and equality and so on. There, this is an example where um, people were presenting a certain moral, a certain practice as being part of a morally upright, um, morally upright society. In fact, it was, you know, we now see it as extremely, extremely morally wrong, one of the great crimes against humanity. And we have, we're left now with these legacies from that extremely complex historical period. What do we do now with the legacies of those huge cultural hypocrisies, um, which have left us with all these figures who did great things and terrible things? How should we be memorializing, memorializing those figures? What other kinds of steps do we have to take as a society? Um, given that we have inherited those, those legacies. So I'll end there. Thank you. So something that came to me, came out in all of your talks, was um, the impossibility of completely avoiding hypocrisy. Um, whether that's in a political sphere or in an individual moral sphere or because we're left with the legacies of historical hypocrisies. Um, where do we draw the line between hypocrisies that we have to pragmatically accept and hypocrisy that we have to completely reject? I have a thought on that. Maybe to start with. So it seems to me that um, some cases of hypocrisy are are very difficult to avoid if you're a sincere moral agent trying to make improvements to things. There are other cases where hypocrisy is being used to obscure extremely serious moral wrongs. And it seems to me that the real, the real issue is, is the hypocrisy involved um, being used to conceal very serious moral wrongs? If so, then you know, the, it's the moral wrong that's the primary, that's the primary issue. The, the hypocrisy is a sort of secondary... Yeah. Um, a secondary wrong in a way, but it, it, it's those cases where, it's, where it is being used to... Um, so it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a moral wrong in itself, but it might be something that uh, conceals other moral wrongs. I mean, I think or that maybe was... it's always maybe it's always a moral wrong, but I think not you see, of you great consequence sometimes. But it's not always a moral wrong. I wouldn't say that it's morally no, wrong if you're yeah. a good person, but it's not morally <laughs> wrong if you're a bad person. Uh, <laughs> I want to make one observation about the avoiding hypocrisy. And I kind of, I, I've been thinking about, like since I was invited to give a talk on this topic, what would be the case where I'm the most hypocritical? And I think Joanne's talk kind of, I, I, I found the, out the answer when I was talking to, listening to your talk. So I think slavery is by far the biggest topic where I'm hypocritical myself. So I completely judge that it's one of the greatest moral wrongs. It's awful. It's as bad as things can be. But I think many of you know that at the, currently in the world, there are more slaves than there's ever been, just because there's so many people in the world currently. And it's not that I'm, I'm thinking that slavery is hugely bad and it's awful, horrible practice. 
And I'm, I'm not really doing personally anything to prevent it, even though there's many things I could do about that. So I'm thinking, when, when I think about my own judgments about slavery, I think that's where one of the areas where I'm being hypocritical clearly are. But this kind of leads to a problem that's quite hard to avoid hypocrisy in this example. So two things you can do to avoid being a hypocrite in this case. Either you can really start working to prevent slavery in the current circumstances. That's pretty demanding. You would have to give up a lot of your personal projects when doing so. Or you might change your judgments, moral judgments and think that slavery actually is fine and you don't need to do anything about that. But both of those options seem to be quite hard roads to take. So it's, it's, in that case, I find it very hard to avoid being hypocritical. I would also, I'd also agree with Joanna that, especially in the case of slavery or you know, blatant injustices or cruelties, it is those very injustices and cruelties that matter, not hypocrisy per se. I mean, hypocrisy is still a moral vice. It is still uh, a morally problematic attempt to conceal those injustices. Uh, but the problem or the tragedy uh, and what should uh, merit our attention or moral condemnation is the cruelty itself, not hypocrisy. Um, now, for what is worth, I mean, in my presentation, I touched on a particular type of hypocrite. Um, in my term, as if we're going to use the you know, Blakean term, the hypocrite of experience, right? A self-conscious conman who is aware of his own moral vices, he's aware of his failings, and he uses these basically to amass these, these rewards that he deems important. But not all hypocrites know themselves for what they are, and not all hypocrites are truthful to themselves. There is also another type of hypocrisy which kind of paradoxically follows from one's twofold belief that he's a morally better or pure human being, so it kind of falls from your emphasis on purity, uh, but also from one's attempt to avoid hypocrisy. And that is the innocent hypocrite who wears his mask not to deceive others, but rather his mask is so compelling that he ends up basically deceiving himself. And there's a fantastic historical example that captures that, Robespierre. He declared war against hypocrisy and brought about the terror of virtue. Desire to avoid hypocrisy led to a war against society, in part because hypocrisy is impossible to unmask. It is a hidden vice. To be obsessed with hypocrisy is to embark on a war against well, witches and unicorns. If you lose sight of cruelty, if you don't put cruelty first, you might end up bringing about cruelty. So that's one example of an unacceptable hypocrisy. Maybe the innocent hypocrite, the individual who wears his mask to deceive himself and who likes to think of himself as you know, devoid of any sort of moral imperfection is much more dangerous than the mere conman that we so frequently encounter uh, in, in politics. So more dangerous or morally worse or both? Are you saying that... Politically dangerous and morally dangerous both. as well. Okay. Yeah, and I think that comes back, I mean, certainly in the case of slavery, people, you know, huge numbers of people, I think, very, very sincerely um, believed that they were doing the right thing. You know, it was it's the case that many religious institutions were upholding slavery, and I don't think they were doing that insincerely. But I think that raises the question, you know, how do you know whether you're being <laughs> in, in, that, in that role yourself? I suppose I wanted to come back to Jussi's thought um, because this is actually, so this is another example of, the, of an objection that we often get f flipped a little bit. So the, the objection is um, you're campaigning to change the name of this hall, but 
the form of slavery in, that you're campaign that you're disturbed by is is from the past. Um, you're, isn't it problematic that you're using your energy towards this historical issue when actually there are tons of people who are enslaved today? Shouldn't you be using this energy towards modern-day slavery? I think there's a, there are some responses to that. One is it's not inconsistent for you to campaign both on both of these issues, right? And many people are campaigning on both of these kinds of issues, both redressing historical cases and also campaigning against modern-day modern slavery. So... That's, that's one response. But there's another response, which is um, to say that these are actually importantly different, um, importantly different practices. So the case of transatlantic slavery was distinctive, you know, uh, it was unique compared with other forms of slavery, both because of the, partly because of the scale, although I, I understand what you're saying, but, but also because of it was racialized. And so it has huge legacies of racism, um, the effect of transatlantic slavery involved, uh, you know, coming to associate um, certain bodily traits with certain, um, um, well, I guess the way that Paul Taylor, the philosopher Paul Taylor puts it, is uh, assigning me particular meanings to bodies and bloodlines. So racism really of, of a classic sense evolved through the transatlantic slave trade in part, and you'd have the whole realm of legacies associated with that that are quite different from many of the other forms of slavery. But that's I'm not to say to that they're not, um, you know, you should be working on both of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do we go from here then? How do we act? When you were talking just then, you'll see it all felt a little bit hopeless that if we're all embedded in these networks in which it's inevitable that we are hypocrites, how do we choose how to behave? How do we prioritize things? Mm -hmm. Or do we just give up? It depends on your take on hypocrisy, I suppose. I mean, in some sense, uh, hypocrisy did not entail giving up. As Joanna mentioned, it might actually bring about meaningful social change. Uh, I mean, especially in the context of democratic politics. I mean, perhaps one of the only ways in which you can do politics is to sit down at the negotiation table with your opponents negotiate, compromise, and achieve some kind of an incremental change. I mean, either that's that, or you know, withdraw from the negotiation table to so achieve nothing, or try to force them uh, to accept your principles, come what may, but that, surely that's not <laughs> a democratic way of doing politics. Um, so in some cases, we should be cognizant of our hypocrisies and also aware that some form of hypocritical dissimulation might even be conducive to civility. You know, getting along, especially in conditions of hostile disagreement. I mean, revealing your inner selves, revealing your emotions to your opponents, cursing them, zealous counter, humiliating them, would not help you to achieve your principles, might even discourage them or exclude them from the process altogether. Uh, and quite possibly, some form of feigning of virtue, hypocritical dissimulation, some kind of manipulation, pretending to be better than you are, uh, might even convince them to, you know, at least gradually accept your point of view and achieve some kind of change in advance, at least some of your principles, not all. I guess I'd, so, I mean, the question is well, how, how, what can we do and how to avoid hypocrisy. I, I guess I, I was thinking about this, and I think my answer will be quite sort of boring and standard answers from moral philosophy, so things like developing empathy, using the golden rule, thinking 
things in a universal sense, how your actions affect from other people, from their other people's perspective, that sort of standard tools. So I think if it, part of hypocrisy is that you make exception, exception of yourself, then kind of using that sort of means, at least in part in everyday context, will, will help to avoid hypocrisy. Hmm. Yeah, so I think maybe being, being attuned to the kinds of things that make us vulnerable to hypocrisy. So one thing that um, lots of studies have been done that show that as people gain more power and status, they become much more likely to say that, they're, that it's reasonable for them to make an exception for themselves in, in various ways. So lots of social psychology has shown that. So maybe it shows that people who are in positions of power have a particular tendency to reason in the way that makes an exception of themselves and we have particular reason to look with some scrutiny towards people in those roles. Mm. Um, and I think powerful people tend to remove themselves from kind of open discussion. Mm. Whereas in kind of everyday life you often called if you're a hypocrite, other people call on you. But like if, if you're in a powerful person, a powerful mm. position, then no one's going to do that. Mm. Yeah. And, and also to think um, that we're all vulnerable to motivated reasoning. And so I think if you look at the historical examples of, relig of churches in the United States um, in debates about uh, race and slavery, you had the, the white churches in the South were very, very, you know, overwhelmingly tended to make a moral case for slavery. Um, they had a very strong incentive to see that that was the moral thing to do, right? And so, um, whereas black churches in the South were, were extremely important in, in moving towards um, abolition, making the case against slavery, and you know they were able to use the inconsistency of the of the arguments of their opponents' arguments in order to leverage for change. So, actually, it was good that that people were being inconsistent in that way because people were able to make the, make the argument using that. Um, but so to look towards what, what, what might you be motivated to, to do for material reasons, say, um, to see as permissible and consider yourself vulnerable in that way, I suppose. Yeah. Should we take some questions from the audience? Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> a question from Joanna and a question from Dimitris. Yeah. The question from Joanna is um, in your quantitative approach to, sla to uh, historical slavery I find very problematic because in, in approaching that those who were part of the slave uh, trade and um, were the affectees of them as if it were only the population which was transferred and not those who were harmed in the process. Yeah. I mean slavery was a process which caused immense harm to those who were the colonizers as well. There's this moral harm in the in the process of slave trade, which should be called upon and not be, you know, sort of uh, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be hesitant around. Can you uh, say more specifically what you had in mind? I I'm, I'm I would quote James Baldwin here that you know the moral harm caused to both the uh, to both the the, uh, the colored and the um, the moral harm caused to those who were involved in moral indifference as I would call it, to, to, be part of a, to be part of a system of slave trade and to have a moral indifference to it is more causing moral harm to the, to the moral agent, right, mm. who, who aims to be a moral agent. Yeah. So, so that's, so I, and, then, and then the question to Dimitris is, if I take that hypocrisy can be argued as a 
virtue in the way you've presented it, but then in the specific case of moral indifference to a system of injustice like slavery, would you consider moral, in, moral indifference to also be a potential virtue, or is it clearly a vice? So the quality of... Yeah, go ahead. So the quality of... Can you clarify? So the quality of moral indifference, whether that is a virtue or a vice. So apathy, basically. Well, that's... that's <laughs> I'm not sure what the answer is to that question, to be fair. But it seems to me quite clear that moral indifference cannot... I mean, it can be an acceptable moral attitude, but not moral indifference to slavery itself. Right? I mean, if we're talking about that particular case, then that means that you're basically failing to realize and recognize the cruelty of that practice. From a philosophical point of view, political apathy, moral indifference, resignation can be a form of, I mean, I wouldn't say virtue, but it's not really unacceptable per se. I can't see why that might be the case. Maybe you can help me in general. But it depends on, I suppose, it's always difficult to generalize. Uh, you know, a practice-based approach to political morality or to political theory or to um, ethical living or to focus on the concrete circumstances of a particular case which we're talking about. As such, it's very hard to generalize and, you know, sing praises or the pounds to moral indifference as such or, you know, even condemn it. We need to be clear about what we're talking about. And with regards to, well, slavery, I think there's something profoundly disturbing there. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Um, so thank you for that question. The, the James Baldwin is, you know, uses this, very, this kind of argument in a very powerful rhetorical way. And I think it's true that we all have a deep stake in our own moral standing. Right? So we care immensely about what our lives mean, what our lives amount to morally. So if it's the case that we're unwittingly or wittingly engaged in practices that are profoundly harmful, um, profoundly immoral, that, that really matters to us because it matters to what our lives mean. At the same time, I think there's such a huge asymmetry in the harm that was done. So the harm that was done for white people who maybe were acting immorally, that matters a lot because we have a stake in our, in our moral lives. But you know, that's, they also were then enjoying the great fruits of their, of their um, exploitation while the lives of people who were enslaved were you know, utterly devastated. And so there's this asymmetry in terms of who's, who's the greatest victim, I think, that is undeniable. And then it's also very important not to forget the consequences for, of course, all the, the areas of West Africa that were particularly affected by slavery, huge numbers of people being taken away, the escalating conflict and war in that, in that area. Uh, so, of course, it's huge consequences there as well. A question at the front? Thank you. I don't think we need to go back to previous centuries or even previous decades, very, you know, or even previous weeks. Um, we have a coming election if we turn away from a, candidate, from a party because we don't like the candidate, you know, or we don't like the leader of that party who's the hypocrite. You know, if, if um, in the American election, if people didn't vote because they didn't like Hillary and look at what was at stake, you know, who, who was acting hypocritically. If, um, 
I can barely say his name, Trump, um, you know, stands up after the, you know, after the, the, the horrible gassing of, of, you know, the poison gas in, in Syria and says, talks about, you know, Christian babies or the, the children of God or whatever at the same time he's cutting aid to clinics and, and hospitals and cutting, and wants to cut health care. Um, these are, I mean, I can't even get the words out for what I, but, but it, it just, I mean, just even myself, I, I'm not a citizen here, I can't vote. I don't particularly, I'm labor, I don't particularly like Jeremy Corbyn, I think he's not the leader for our time. But why aren't I out there campaigning for the Labor Party against what's going out now? I'm the hypocrite. I, I sort of completely agree with you that there's tons and tons of hypocrisy going around all the time. And I, I think I wanted to just add two examples to those ones that, that you had. So both political, both about the one about American elections and one about the British elections. So in the American elections where I thought there was like huge hypocrisy was when um, before Trump was elected, you had all these Republicans um, kind of making moral condemnation and moral judgments how bad person Trump is. And then after he was elected, that there was kind of complete flip-flop and they started to kind of praise the exact same policies that they were kind of judging before the election. And I, I thought that's a kind of huge hypocrisy in, in many ways. Um, I think in the debate about the EU membership, there's been a lot of hypocrisy as well in the sense that uh, people have, um, before the election, made certain kind of judgments, and now it seems like they're no, no longer moved by those same arguments at all. So I, I guess all of this said, I completely agree that there's tons of examples. And that it has profound effects on our trust in the possibility of positive kind of politics, I suppose, as well, right? If you think it, it means it undermines public trust in a way that is very damaging. I suppose the, it didn't catch your question because it was uh, just returned. But I suppose the question of public trust is important and um, was also important is sort of the recent phenomenon which I have been in some sense witnessing, uh, the phenomenon of political disenchantment, which kind of also relates to questions of political trust or the lack of trust uh, to our politicians, yes. And to ourselves as well, yes, or to our politics or, and, and to society altogether. Um, the interesting question to ask in relation to political disenchantment is this, however. Might it be the case that we, are, we have basically misplaced moral aspirations about what our politics should be delivering in the first place? Might it be the case that we tend to expect way too much and we demand way too much from our politicians? I mean, in some cases, I suppose the, the problem with Corbyn is not really, it, I mean, you can't say that in some sense his, his problem is his this sort of commitment, his conviction that he, he ought to remain morally pure. It's his ideological purity that renders him incapable for virtuously participating in politics. Question here. Um, one element that I think of as important in my definition of what hypocrisy is arrogance, the, the moral arrogance of the person. To me, if, and possibly it touches on the point of moral indifference, but there's it's not, you can be, I think it's, you can morally care but not be morally arrogant. And I, for me, it's hard to see someone who's not 
morally arrogant as being a hypocrite. Mm. But I guess I can see that when society puts virtues and puts power on a person, even if I think of cases like the Pope, where you could argue that the Pope himself might not be arrogant, but when society puts so much weight on what he says, he can be a hypocrite, even if he's not being being <laughs> arrogant himself. I wonder if you could just touch on that. I'm thinking that there's, I mean, there's many different kinds of hypocrites. So some people are hypocrites sort of unknowingly. And if someone's kind of hypocrite unknowingly, unwittingly, I don't, I'm not sure they're necessarily arrogant. But if someone's a hypocrite and they kind of know that they're hypocrites, hypocrites and they still go forward and do that, like that seems to me like height of arrogance. That, that's like double whammy in a, in a way that seems even worse. That's, that's a very nice way of putting the point actually about Edward Colston because of course I don't, we have no idea what he, his own attitudes towards himself were. I, so it seems like calling him a hypocrite exactly, well we don't really know what his, what his state was but then there's all these societies that have built up around him and we're kind of collectively turning him into <laughs> a hypocrite maybe, I don't know. So, but maybe the, the, the way that you phrased it was very nice I thought. That's a fantastic point. I mean, the connection between hypocrisy and moral arrogance is important. I haven't really thought about that. But I suppose it kind of relates back to my point about, you know, mask wearing and pretension. I mean, at least with regards to that particular case of hypocrisy, if you are going to be an actor in public life, then it's quite clear to see how arrogance relates to that. I mean, if you are going to manipulate your audience and their sympathies and gain their trust, which you intend to betray uh, at some point in the future, and you need to put an Oscar-worthy performance. You need to be arrogant and sort of confident uh, about the way in which you will mask your vices and intentions. So there seems to be an intricate relationship between hypocrisy and arrogance. But, of course, as you mentioned, hypocrisy does come in different guises and forms. I mean, one can be also... One can pretend to be arrogant when one is not. And that is also another form of hypocrisy, which I, I'm not sure why that might be... What might, that might occur, but uh, it's also another possibility. Question towards the back? Um, yeah, to follow up with the arrogance, um, is there a link between hypocrisy and self-righteousness? And the idea of who is your moral you know, goodness really benefiting, you know, maybe in the case of the slavery, is righting the wrong more for yourself um, than you know, for the actual wrong? Um, just one way of looking at the, the situation. Or, and also another second point in regards to politics is what maybe makes hypocrisy such a vice in itself or different from other vices is that it kind of shows us the incapacity of our morality. It shows us the limit of our morality. If we can't follow what we say, what, you know, then what good is the should? What good is the should? Are you going to write a pa- should write a paper under that title? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, your, your point about hypocrisy and self-righteousness... Um, does kind of capture nicely what I like to call, you know, the hypocrisy of innocence. Wearing your mask, deceiving yourself, believing yourself to be this morally pure, the better human being, who has this fantastic vision of society and then trying to realize that, come what may. Uh, and, and that is a very, very dangerous form of hypocrisy. Because if you're an innocent hypocrite, you completely lack self-knowledge, self-awareness, and you're very, very dangerous. You're incapable of subjecting your own actions to critical reflection and judgment. Uh, and it seems to be a far more problematic case of hypocrisy vis-à-vis, again, your commonplace conman. Now, with regards to politics and morality, hypocrisy, you're perfectly correct. I perfectly agree. Hypocrisy does 
illustrate uh, the limits of morality in politics, or quite possibly the incompatibility of an admirable moral life with a good political life, if you, of course, accept uh, my proposal that in some venues hypocrisy might be uh, conducive to toleration and civility, the sustainment of political friendships amidst hostile disagreement and conflict. I'm curious as to whether Joanna and Yossi agree with you on this. Possibility. About the incompatibility between the political life and the moral life. That's, that's almost what you're saying, the necessity of the hypocritical yeah. political persona for... Uh... We were talking about this beforehand and uh, I was saying that's a very, very almost nihilistic, very, very, very pessimistic anyway, um, position on, on politics and I'm much more of a peace, love, hope, and justice person. You know, I think we can, I think compromise is not necessarily hypocritical. I think that we can aspire sincerely towards progressive change uh, where we're working with people that we're in deep conflict with, doing so in civilized terms, but, you know, maybe not showing all of our hand. That doesn't have to be um, an act of hypocrisy in my, in my book. But, uh, yeah. Can I, I I quickly wanted to say something to that question. Sorry, it took me a while to think about this. But that I was thinking, of imagining a person who was kind of their soul, like the main moral focus in their moral reasoning was their own hypocrisy, and they mm. tried to do everything not to be hypocritical. I, I would think that that's a kind of bit of a moral fetish. It's a sort of clean hand syndrome. You're, you're mm. trying to make yourself a good moral agent, but you're not really focusing on the other people and how your actions are affecting them. So I'm thinking that if, you, if you're so concerned about oh, your own hypocrisy, then that seems like a bad thing. Yep, question here. Thank you. Um, I wondered if the panel considers Britain as a society to have notably different attitudes towards hypocrisy, uh, different levels of tolerance of hypocrisy um, in, I don't know, British public discourse, British academia, the British media, I'd, I'd be interested. And I think we'll take another one as well, so lady at the back. Um, yeah, I was just, maybe it's an adjunct to that, which is, do we have such high expectations that people who go into politics or maybe other public uh, officers have to have this unbelievable standard of either purity, goodness, um, good intentions, that we then look at, you know, they've got to have perfect families, no skeletons in their path, blah, blah, blah. They can't have an opinion unless they kind of do this purity test. I exempt France from this analogy because that obviously isn't an issue there. But you look at the more Anglo-Saxon political requirements, it has to turn people into hypocrites to even kind of be in the race. Thank you. Okay, so two questions. The first one was about British attitudes to hypocrisy. The second one more generally about high expectations of um, people in public life, politicians, causing people to become hypocrites. I can say something quickly about the first question. I'll leave the second question to everyone else. But I'm thinking that sort of media and news media in a society is a quite good test for hypocrisy. So it seems like when you have a lot of good investigative journalism and sort of calling out people in public roles, that's a good kind of prevention measure and that, mm. that seems to suggest that the society isn't tolerating that much tolerance. Uh, I'm not sure where that kind of inter international comparisons go. It seems like in British media there's a kind of long good tradition about 
investigative journalism, but sometimes I despair the current state of affairs where some of the media itself seems to be quite hypocrit hypocritical in, in many situations. So mm. that, that's just... Mm. I guess, yeah, so there's a question whether the, the, the culture, actually I guess the, the kind of cultural tone at the moment anyway is so ad hominem and, vi and very, you know, venomous sort of and damning style of public debate. Um, and I think sometimes that moves things on well. Personally, I, I would prefer for us to move towards a culture that was a bit more um, convivial, to use Paul Gilroy's, you know, got a sort of value of conviviality. I think that's, it would be good for that to come to the fore more. I suppose you're also, I mean, with regards to our inflated moral expectations and attitudes, that is, in short, what also fuels our disappointment. Because if we set the bar too high, if we fail to recalibrate our expectations, if we fail to actually realize that, you know, politics is bound to be grubby, it requires compromise, sacrifice, in some sense, betraying your aspirations, failing to realize them in practice, you know, working with others who hold different views, sacrificing some of your principles to achieve some others. If we fail to realize that, if we hold to the view of, you know, clean hands, moral purity, then we're always bound to be disappointed. Uh, but that's in part our fault, um, regardless of whether you know, there are compromises and there are compromises. This, is, this much is for granted. Now, the other question is, of course, on, kind of relates to you know, the, the previous question about our views on hypocrisy. Um, I mean, there are the seven principles of public life, and honesty and openness is listed as one of these. Um, I'm not really sure about you know, surveys which reveal British attitudes towards hypocrisy. Um, I have a lot of work on, on, on that, though I am aware that we tend to be very, very skeptical um, with regards to politicians who compromise. We tend to focus on the negative aspect of compromise, compromise qua betrayal, as opposed to compromise qua advancing some of the principles, not all of them, but some, you know, meaning, uh, you know, a sort of a small but nonetheless incremental change. Um, but I want to slightly sort of change the focus here and make a point about the dangers of becoming very, very obsessed with hypocrisy. Um, it is, of course, useful always to uh, consider questions of moral character in politics, but if all media and if citizens become obsessed with hypocrisy, with unmasking their politicians, that obsession might come at the expense of more meaningful political discussion of subjecting the policies themselves or the views of politicians, their proposed programs to critical consideration. I mean, if you become heavily obsessed with hypocrisy, you might end up with various attempts, you know, various character assassinations, and that's going to be pretty much it. And you know, have a look at the US presidential election. That's how the whole election, the whole campaign was conducted. No policies, no meaningful debate, just various uh, sort of attacks on the character of each uh, politician. I just wanted to say one thing about that I, I really liked about John's original that talk in the beginning was I, I think she said at some point that the kind of criticism of hypocrisy oftentimes ha works as kind of silencing the politician. So mm. if, the, if the politician is kind of campaigning for a good cause and then we find out that at home they're doing something completely different, then the media jumps on this and then there's a big sort of storm and, and no one no longer takes the original policies or the arguments for them seriously. It's a kind of, I mean, in philosophy introduction classes, we always relegate the ad hominem arguments and oftentimes kind of charges of hypocrisy 
works very much in that way. So I, th I think I agree that we should focus on the arguments and the policies, and I agree with you that we should tolerate some degree of um, hypocrisy as long as it's kind of within the limits of moral decency. I, I yeah. So question here. Uh, yeah, it was kind of all around the area of the last couple of questions. Uh, just maybe to build up a little bit on that. Um, I was wondering whether, you know, because when we, we tend to judge uh, hypocrisy very strictly when it comes to public figures and we see it almost any type of hypocrisy as a disqualifying factor. Um, I was wondering whether, you know, there could be any say, logical difference between a type of hypocrisy when uh, somebody is uh, supposedly preaching for a cause and under other circumstances would be changing their opinion and, uh, you know, depending on the audience maybe um, claiming some other thoughts. Would that still be called hypocrisy or would hypocrisy only be, be something when your you know, expressed views are not just inconsistent between themselves but inconsistent with your personal actions would only kind of that hold as a hypocrisy. And also... Um, again, to what you said, um, why, for example, some actions in the strictly private sphere of life would necessarily need to be the lens for, um, you know, the public opinions of a person when it comes to public good. Again, like how actually, uh, even like logically consistent it is to say that, uh, you know, you cannot have both at the same time if one is, is not a great example of the other. So would you... Would you comment something on that? Well, when I was preparing for this panel, I went to the Oxford English Dictionary to see what hypocrisy was. Um, and, uh, and actually, the OED definition just says that it's when you pretend to be morally better than you are, which is kind of curious, because that, that was it. That, it didn't go further. And actually, it seems like in our everyday use of the term, there's something quite a bit more specific that people have in mind. It's like you're holding up a particular standard and you know, promoting that in, in theory and then and holding everybody else to that but then letting it, you know, making an exception of yourself, which is, is, sounds extremely morally important because it's, you know, that's, that sounds like it's right at the heart of morality. Kant certainly seems to think that making an exception of yourself is right at the heart of what would be immoral. So, um, I don't know, so I'm, I'm interested that you also have an intuition that there's something very particular that hypocrisy is... It was an interesting case in the papers this week of uh, Tim Farron and quizzing him about whether he thinks gay sex is evil or not. And the responses of the broadsheets were really interesting. So someone, I think, in The Guardian said, I don't care whether he thinks that gay sex is evil, I just care about his voting record. And one of the other papers said, actually, there's a problem if his moral beliefs are inconsistent um, with his voting record, then he's a hypocrite, and then then we should criticize him. So he didn't seem to be able to win um, in either of those cases, but it did seem to raise again this issue of the, the discrepancy between one's individual beliefs and one's practices in the public sphere. I wanted to sort of, I'm, I have to apologize, this isn't kind of directly addressing your question, but it's sort of prompted by your question. I, I wish I could answer your question as you asked it. But I hear a lot of people um, in this panel and in this room and myself included, kind of thinking of hypocrisy in terms of kind of inconsistent views. But I've tried to work out what the inconsistencies are where we get contradictions in the moral views when, when we kind of think about hypocrites. And 
I can't really seem to find the contradictions themselves. So that's why I try to present hypocrisy more as kind of um, mismatch between your moral judgments and your motivation, which isn't a contradiction or inconsistency per se. It's just lacking in motivation that you need to have. But it's quite hard for me to actually construct what the inconsistencies are supposed to be. So Farron a good example. So Farron thinks that we should live in a liberal society and when we can set the rules of the society, um, we shouldn't refer to things like religion. We should, I guess that's a kind of and idea of overlapping consensus and you can only refer to public reasons that, that anyone could accept. So he's got very kind of specific vision about how we should determine what the rules of the society are and those should be liberal rules. Whereas he's thinking that in his private life, maybe he's against certain sexual practices. But, I mean, you might call him a hypocrite, but I don't think there's kind of any inconsistency per se there. And I, I find it personally quite hard to find what the inconsistencies are. And that's why I find it hard to... I think kind of one example you gave is the kind of where politicians campaign for certain changes in the society but they don't yet act in that way. So I guess the private education is one good example of that kind of case where politicians campaign that we should set the rules of society in so, such a way that there's no longer be private education after that. But even if you campaign for that, I don't think it's inconsistent um, before that's the case to send your children to a private school. Um, I don't think that's inconsistent. I'm not sure if, if it's even hypocritical. Maybe the inconsistent, maybe it has to do with how you're unpacking the implicit so, uh, logic. So you might say maybe maybe both people think that logic is one ought not to send one's children to private school, um, and you think that's the judgment, and then the person is sending their children to private school. Yeah. Whereas you're saying that the the judgment is actually we should set up society so that this isn't happening, but since society isn't yet in that state, then the the rule doesn't apply to you in the same way. So I guess it depends on that. And I think also that. In the standard cases of hypocrisy, I think the people who we call hypocrisies, that they make sort of arbitrary distinctions. So they kind of say that everyone who's such and such ought to do this and that, but then they find a way of explaining some arbitrary difference. I've got blonde hair, so I'm not have people mm. who are such and such, and therefore I don't have to do that. So I think people are good in the way that they try to avoid cognitive dissonance and contradictions, and, and I think the hypocrites do that successfully. So I don't. I, I guess I'm starting to want to argue that they're not contradictory. <laughs> um. I think the real harm is when it, the point I said before, really, that if it obscures major wrongdoing, then that's, that's what the, the real harm of hypocrisy is. It, manage, you know, it lets people get off the hook morally, um, you know, in, potentially in ways that could be very damaging. I, mean, I think the relationship between hypocrisy and inconsistency is very, very interesting because in most cases we, lack, we tend to equate hypocrisy. Uh, with inconsistency, but I'm not really sure that that is, or that, that is sort of a correct way of thinking about hypocrisy in its relationship with inconsistency. I mean, in some venues, hypocrisy does involve some element of inconsistency, but it's, is it really the case that inconsistency in itself constitutes evidence of hypocrisy? I think it's more the commitment not to be inconsistent, which you cannot sustain, that kind of generates conditions or perhaps charges of hypocrisy rather than merely your inconsistency in itself. Does that make sense? <laughs> there are some questions here. Yeah. 
Hi, it, it, it feels to me like one of the missing elements here that, that for me is key to the definition of hypocrisy is prescription. And the more explicit the prescription, the more it's hypocrisy and the more it isn't. So in the case of private education, if a politician's actively stopping others and saying it's morally wrong, then you think, and then you find out they're sending their kids, you think, wow, what a hypocrite. If they're saying it's morally wrong, you think, well, there's an implicit prescription in that. So they're a hypocrite, but probably perhaps not as bad as the other case. And then if they were saying, well, I think it's in, up to all individual parents, really. I don't think we should judge. But personally, I just it feels wrong to me. And then you found out they were doing it. You'd think, well, they're a sham. But you wouldn't necessarily think they're a hypocrite. So, I, yeah, I wonder what the panel thought of that. And can we take the other question as well? Um, so, kind of revisiting the public crucifi crucifixion of politicians and public figures who perhaps don't adhere to societal norms or societal values that they're supposedly, that they're espousing publicly. Um, do you think that hypocrisy can actually be kind of a useful tool in re-examining whether those values were correct in the first place? Because especially, I think, thinking about the history of bedroom morality dominating politicians' political careers. I mean, I think there's a pretty strong argument for saying that those ideas are really outdated anyway. So hypocrisy could potentially be useful in getting people to re-examine what they think of is morally upright and correct. I mean, I, I can quickly say something too. I don't want to dominate, but I, I just quickly want to say a few things. About, so I, I think I agree with both of those questions. So I, I'm quite sympathetic to the idea that we think of moral judgments as prescriptions. So what happens in the case of hypocrisy is that the hypocrite kind of prescribes, tells other people to do in a certain way, but don't think that the prescription applies to themselves and, and therefore they don't feel that they, they should be motivated in, in accordance to the prescription that they think they apply to other people. So I, I think I'm with you there. Um, I also like the second point very much. So if it turns out that most of us are hypocritical on some issue, and not being hypocritical would, would make our lives worse, then something's gone wrong, and we shouldn't stop being hypocritical, but we should change the moral judgment, the prescription in the first place. And I think the example of, kind of sexual practices, um, so I, mm. I agree with both of you. Well, I think that it, could, it can be that case. So it can be that the reason we're all acting against this moral standard is that actually the moral standard's getting something wrong. We need to reevaluate re that. I think there's another case in which um, society set up with great injustice just permeating it or with great um, barriers to moral action just perme permeating it. And then it's not the, it's, you know, we have to look across the board at how we, how we manage to change things to, to overcome that, that structurally uh, incentivized injustice. Um, so it could be evidence either that big change is needed or that we need to change the moral standards. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Mm. But I think both of them are good additions to that. Yes. I mean, we, yeah. we haven't thought that we exhausted everything about hypocrisy, so... Yeah, that's have to be fresh, but they're excellent points. Yeah. Okay, maybe one or two more questions. Yeah, person at the back. Uh, so, um, it uh, seems to me, as to many others here, perhaps, that... that Hypocrisy has become a kind of catch-all term that is basically the same as inconsistency, as you've talked about here. So then I'm thinking about, I mean, maybe another way of making a 
a bit more useful would be to sort of think about the, uh, the etymology as you have talked about as well. So what is it about play acting that is problematic? When is that problematic? Well, it's problematic when it's sort of unbelievable, when it undermines uh, credibility. So it, could that be the, the, the sort of uh, what hypocrisy ought to, to pick out? Uh, so it's not only, so it's a special case of inconsistency, you could say. Being inconsistent in a way that undermines the credibility of what you're saying. But maybe it's really much worse if it is believable and we all go along with this. You know, so, so if you have um, hypocritical judgments that actually are persuasive to everybody, then, then that's my case where I think it obscures the real moral um, contours of the situation. So in a way, I'm almost proposing the polar opposite of your view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but, but if we want to make it more precise and less sort of floating around, but maybe we don't want that. <laughs> yeah, suggesting another question. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I just wanted to say that, and this is something we talked actually before this session, that I think hypocrisy is worse in sort of very visible public offices. So if, mm. if the people we look up to and the people we idealize as young people are being hypocritical, then it's quite easy to get mm. sort of very cynical frame of mind where you think that what you need to do in life is, is just to get ahead by mm. any means whatsoever. And if it involves being a hypocrite, then that's fine because that's what those people are doing there in the public offices. So I, I think it's sort of damaging, damaging to that kind of moral integrity of the society if, if people very invisible mm. situations are. That's exactly why the version or the, this conception of consistency as akin to, or, or integrity as akin to consistency or the integrity and consistency of the saint, as it were, is very, very problematic. It leaves little room for change. It also leaves very little room for the possibility of entertaining the possibility of conflict, being faced with two conflicting options. I mean, in that particular case, you have to act inconsistently. You have to abandon one of these. We'll just sneak in one last question. I think there was one on the front, yeah. Um, so I was curious what you would say how descriptions fit into this. And I'll give you two examples to clarify what I mean. Um, so first, uh, imagine that I say something and I do something and someone else says, you're being a hypocrite. And I contest the description. I say, the thing that I did didn't contradict the thing that I said. And... So that could be hair-splitting, but it could also be a legitimate contest of descriptions. You could also have someone who changed their mind about how they think someone should act, and so they went from not being a hypocrite to being a hypocrite or vice versa. Um, so if you say you shouldn't, I don't know, you, you, shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't hurt people, uh, and then they change their minds later so you should hurt people, um, that could change whether they class are classified as a hypocrite. But I suppose, if you can jump in, I mean, your, your example, your point actually is very, very interesting and very nicely captures to why we perhaps should not be so obsessed with unmasking the hypocrisy of others. I mean, what matters is what you did, right? I mean, it, it's, it's fruitless to start debating about whether you are or have been or used to be a hypocrite or otherwise. Um, it's futile for me to try to unmask your true interests and aspirations. I cannot, you know, it's impossible for me to, you know, penetrate the human heart and see what your true interests and aspirations are in the first place. And, and perhaps the best that we can do, in part because, you know, allegations and charges of hypocrisy are impossible to demonstrate or refute, to just focus on, on, on the concrete nature of our actions. 
And in cases we have, in, in which we have obvious injustices, it is those injustices that we ought to prioritise. It goes back to Joanna's presentation. I think I'm, so what was the name of the person in Bristol? Edward Colston. Colston. So I was thinking about that case in just the kind of first half of your question. So the person was supposed to be a philanthropist, so he's helping lots of people in Bristol, and at the same time he was kind of being a, in the slave trade. So um, I bet he drew some distinctions. So I bet he thought that Bristolians are in some important way different from the slaves that he was um, selling. But I think we can go either way there. So what's the moral flaw that he was guilty of? He might have been a hypocrite, in which case the kind of the distinction he was telling about was all for the show and he was just kind of getting things wrong in that way. Or maybe he genuinely believed in the distinction and he was kind of flat out just discriminating arbitrarily between people. I, I think we can go sort of either way. I I'm not sure whether there's any principled reason to go either one way in all cases, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, that's right, it's cold comfort for the people who are being enslaved that he wasn't being hypocritical. He really thought you were, like, you know, less, had less status as a human being. That's not exactly, you know, yeah. <laughs> but that's, yeah. they're, they're the, the flaws. But again, the flaw is, is, is not in the hypocrisy, so. it's the cruelty, yeah. But then the, the descriptions, I think, matter a lot because they have implications for the further actions that we might take. They have implications for our understanding of our own of our own action. That's a, that's a really interesting question. Okay, we are out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming and invite you to uh, join me in thanking our speakers again.